So good morning, everyone. And um, I hope you can all hear me well. I'll try to keep my voice at about this level. If this is good, can everyone hear it? Okay. I'll try to keep talking up as I become uh, go on to the talk. I sometimes get concentrated and the voice wants to drop. I um, would like to explore today... Um, this subject, the relationship uh, between Buddha nature and human nature. And I think that anyone who keeps going down this path um, finds this a subject of interest. What is Buddha nature? I know certainly when I first started doing Buddhist um, meditation practices, That was a term that kind of piqued my curiosity and also confounded me. I thought, well, what is that? Is that outside there or something? And what does that have to do with me and my life? Um, and, And in the past couple of years, I've reflected on this even in a more... Um, and it's just come up for me in a more natural way and also in a more systematic way. Um, and that's because in these last two years, we're living in a time where there are many um, dramatic and violent human actions that seem hard to understand and perhaps put together with, well, what is this Buddha nature, human nature? There are many leaders around the world, political leaders, including our own, and, and also religious leaders that, that are telling us that what we have to pay attention to and what's really important, a strong, deep part of us, of our nature, is to be at war. I think this, um, this comes up when great fear arises in us and it becomes difficult to see and to sort out what, what our true nature is. Of course, Buddhist teaching says the opposite. In other words, that our nature doesn't need to be at constant war. I'd like to uh, quote from a translation of the Dhammapada, which is one of the earliest collections of the sayings of the Buddha and and one of the most pithy and uh, poetic in a way. Um, Of course, there are volumes of Buddhist teachings, but the Dhammapada, in a sense, it would be the one small book, if one had to take one with a book to a desert island, that one would need to come to some understandings of the Buddhist teachings. This is from Thomas Byram's translations, and these, uh, these quotations, these verses, are from the very first verse, which he translates as choices. Only love dispels hate. This is the law, ancient and inexhaustible. See the faults as faults, the true as true. Look into your own heart and follow your nature. Give up the old ways, passion, enmity, and folly. Know the truth and find peace. Share the way. 
And it's not only people who follow the Buddha's way who see human nature in this way. There are many people throughout human history who see a very different view than the one of the 17th century English philosopher Thomas Hobbes, that our lives are short, brutish, and nasty. And I'd like to also read something now from um, Stephen Jay Gould, who unfortunately died this past year. You may know him. He's a prolific scientific writer and writer in general feels he wrote a lot about baseball too. He's one of these incredible people who had many interests and uh, much energy and, and really uh, uh, a wonderful writer, even for those of us who, who aren't really scientifically minded but like to read in that area. He, he was very accessible. He worked at Harvard as a zoologist and paleontologist. He lived in New York and wrote this following piece shortly the week after 9-1-1. He worked as a vol- in the volunteer brigades, uh, bringing food to the rescue workers and the firemen uh, at Ground Zero after 9-1-1. And he wrote, We often assume societies are made of decent and depraved people in equal numbers. But we need to expose that fallacy so that in this moment of crisis, we may reaffirm and celebrate an essential truth that's too easily forgotten and regain some crucial comfort too readily forgone. Good and kind people outnumber all others by thousands to one. The tragedy of human history lies in the enormous potential for destruction in rare acts of evil, not in the high frequency of evil people. Complex systems can only be built step by step, whereas destruction requires but an instant. Thus, in what I like to call the great asymmetry, Every spectacular incident of evil will be balanced by 10,000 acts of kindness, too often unnoted and invisible as the ordinary effects of a vast majority. So this view of our human nature is that our ordinary state is one of kindness, benevolence, goodwill toward others. And that is a view that's consonant with the Buddhist teachings. In, in one way, uh, we could look at a broad overview of what the Buddha taught as an experiential learning about our human nature. And this is an integrative learning, one that unifies our body, mind, and spirit through a truly remarkable set of participatory guideposts and instructions. And the main guideposts are the four ennobling truths. I heard Stephen Batchelor give a lecture uh, on this subject of what he called the four ennobling truths. And he chose that word rather than 
using the the more common translation of the Four Noble Truths, uh, and talked about that in in a way that was very convincing to me and also very encouraging. And one of his reasons for calling these truths the ennobling, uh, using the ing, the gerund form, was that the Pali language itself, um, that's the way that it's structured. Um, so it, it always has this active verb form dimension around nouns and adjectives. And also because it helps us recall and remember that these are participatory truths, that these are ones we engage in and with and live. They're not something we just read or listen to and can file in the memory banks. Although hopefully we will, so we have them to call up for us in those moments when we really need them and find them of great use. And there are key instructions um, that are derived from these truths that, that really show us and point the way that we, can, that we can get to know our human nature and see how that relates to our Buddha nature. And these are the foundations of mindfulness and the teachings on loving-kindness and the other Brahma-viharas, compassion, generous joy, and equanimity. Of course, there are many, many teachings, um, meditation techniques in the Buddhist, in all the Buddhist traditions. But the one I'd particularly like to bring in today in in exploring this relationship of our nature are the teachings around awareness. So they, these teachings depend on each of us as individuals to inquire, what is this? And they are also, it's well worth remembering, accessible to us And it's said very clearly that they're accessible to everyone that's a human being. And they do call for us to engage with our whole being, our curiosity, our attention, concentration, and our patience and perseverance. Find out who we are. What is this life? And all these teachings hinge on a central fact of our human nature, and that is awareness. You know, it's, it's really quite remarkable. Our awareness of our awareness is a particularly what defines us as humans. We know that we know in ways that other creatures don't. We have the capacity to share our knowledge through language in in a way that's much more complete and and far-reaching than other creatures do. We also have the capacity to, this is in a sense part of language, a capacity to externalize our awareness and our knowledge. And so I think this is both the good news and the bad news. The Buddha said, everything we need for complete freedom, 
we find in this body. So we have all the equipment necessary to understand our whole nature. The five body sense doors and the mind sense door is all we need. That's the good news part. The difficult part is that the way we're constructed and put together as human beings, it looks like and feels like we're split apart. We have this kind of inbuilt duality to us. Um, And that makes it difficult to see a wholeness of our nature. The way our minds and bodies are constructed, we can externalize their the existential events that go on within us and that we see the the events that go on outside us so that these events, which are really processes, look like fixed things. And this is what is the ordinary lens of our awareness. And what the Buddha's teachings point us to are the more powerful lenses we have so that we can access both broader and deeper views of our lives. In a a metaphorical way of speaking, we can can tune into and turn both the microscope and the macroscope that are also part of our awareness. And the way that we do this is through meditative practices, particularly practices of mindfulness and awareness themselves. So I'd like to give an illustration from from the teachings, some of the central part of the the teachings of the the Four Noble Ennobling Truths. You may know of the marks of being, suffering, which is called dukkha, impermanence, and anicca are two of these marks. And they're fairly easy to bring into a coarse focus with our ordinary awareness. But the third mark of being, mark of existence, uh, impersonality or no self, is hard to see and hard to comprehend. When we haven't activated the subtler and more powerful lenses, it really looks quite counterintuitive to think that we have no self, to be aware that we have no self. I mean, it looks like a self, it walks like a self, it talks like a self. But when we slow and stop and sit and still, then we can see from the inside of our being that we, just like everything else, that we can also apprehend through this kind of awareness doesn't exist in a fixed way. Though I'm Carolyn and completely unique as Carolyn, as every other human being is completely unique and every other thing that exists actually, there's no me that I can point to that exists independent of these causes and conditions of my whole past, everything that's brought me to this moment, speaking here now, drinking this sip of water. And everything that will bring me to the next moment. 
The Dalai Lama describes no-self as interdependence. That is, that suggests to me that we don't have a standalone self, that we cannot, in fact, exist without everything else. And, and this isn't a linguistic trick, but something that each of us can understand directly through our faculties of awareness, and particularly those subtle awarenesses that are innate in our mind-body that we can tune into through, through our practice. And, and also when we become aware of the more subtle aspects of impermanence, you know, the, 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 uh, the coarse aspects that we, we all understand easily as impermanence. We see our children grow and develop and we see ourselves age, our parents pass on. We see many things change in our circumstances and that's all fairly obvious to us. But when we become aware through our meditative practices of more subtle aspects, we can actually sense that our material being does only exist in a provisional way. And likewise with our suffering, we all, we all know suffering on, on, a, on a kind of an obvious level without, without having to undertake any, any sitting down and looking at things through meditation. Uh, we know when things feel unpleasant and Pleasant. We know the suffering that we feel in our hearts when those close to us and even in the world when, when terrible things happen. But when we, we tune into the finer lens of suffering, we become aware of how and when suffering comes about for us in the moment. You know, and we can even stop beating our heads against the wall then when we, when we become aware of this. When we really see how it, how the suffering arises, how it comes into being, we can see how to let go of it, how not to, how it's actually not the deepest part of our nature. And I don't want to go on too long with this lens of metaphor because our awareness is not only seeing, but it's also a much more profound and global way of knowing. We have hand awareness and ear awareness and many, many more, most of which we have little conscious control over, such as liver awareness and gallbladder awareness. Each component, constituent of us as human beings is aware in a way that we, uh, that we usually just take for granted. And also our awareness, which we usually think of as centered in our minds uh, and about our ideas, isn't just about our ideas, although awareness definitely includes those. It's much larger than simply ideas. And in fact, our ideas can get in the way of awareness. 
Ideas are representations of reality, concepts. Of course, they're necessary and useful, extremely, and powerful. But they become problematic because we construct them so that the ideas are very often far removed from an accurate representation of reality, what's actually occurring in the moment. And this is exactly what Buddhist meditation practices point to. Um, Of course, many people, particularly scientists, make the point that it's impossible to nail down reality. I mean, many people understand this. Uh, I I enjoy reading popular science, um, and especially what physicists and astronomers um, are doing. And... We can, following what those guys are doing, we can see that the more we look into space, the more vast the cosmos appears, more finer, you know, aspects and features of, of the universe that we exist in be, have become apparent to people who look into this, who do research in it, whose work it is to look into this. And also, on the on the the uh, the very small physical level, and physicists I was just reading uh, look into the the very tiny microscopic level. They're postulating that there are universes in an electron, sort of sub sub subatomic infinite regress. That uh, that awareness is in fact vast and non. There's no end to it. But nevertheless, this, none of this stops us knowing that we have ideas and that they're not really real, uh, that they're concepts and representations. But it doesn't stop us from believing them, that they are real, uh, which can be a handy device to go through the world. But it's, it's, it's very helpful to understand the whole of our nature especially to look at the idea of what our self is. We can describe awareness as a fluid comprehension of reality as it moves through our senses. And this kind of awareness has been known to human beings uh, from a long time, before the Buddhist time and coexistent with the Buddhist time, the Taoist site, for example, our, our total awareness, which they identify as kind of an energetic awareness, in the belly, it's called the Dantin. And in Japanese Zen, this site is called the Hara. And in these traditions, this centered awareness is considered more important than, than any individual awareness, including our head awareness or our heart awareness because it holds all of them in these traditions. There's a Renzai Zen master, Sogaku Harada, who said, you have to realize the center of the universe is in your hara. So pointing to what our nature is. And when we engage in, with this awareness, we can come to radical comprehension. We can realize that at the root, there's no difference between our human nature and Buddha nature. 
we can know directly that we are not our cravings and hankerings, our sorrows and afflictions. Zen Buddhism describes this kind of realization because we ourselves are intrinsically Buddha nature, it's possible for us to awaken to it even though we can't describe it. And the Buddha in the early Pali uh, texts in the Samyutta Nikaya describes a great human as one who has liberated his or her mind through the practices of mindfulness. So it's famously not easy to talk about the quality of this experience because it is beyond the dualities of mind and language. But nevertheless, there are some representations and some pointers as to what this looks and feels like. And these each one of us can discover for ourselves. Even within the flood of streaming information that goes on within us uh, every moment, the inside and outside data from all the six senses, the changes, the movement, we can sense with this broad awareness an ease, a wholeness, a completeness. Within this awareness, we can know what's going on, but we don't have to be perturbed by any of it. We can act and remain balanced within the world of action, and no matter what the outcome and the results of our actions are. And this, this kind of awareness, which is both very broad and global and encompassing, and can also be very fine and precise and detailed, uh, is in our ordinary lives as well as in our meditation practice. But as I said earlier, it does take some time to, patience to cultivate it to understand it more deeply. It's alluded to by many poets, both within the Buddhist tradition and outside. And I'd like to, I'd like to quote a couple of these at this point. One is Itsumi Chibuku, who's a 10th century um, Japanese woman. She was an attendant to the Empress of Japan in the Heian Uh, empire considered one of the high uh, points of of the Japanese cultural flowering, like the Western Renaissance. She was also a courtesan and later in her life uh, became a Buddhist nun. And she writes in the short form of tanka and haiku very precisely and clearly about this kind of awareness. Watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. Another pointer to this, to a quality of this awareness that, that allows us to see both our Buddha and human natures 
is pointed to by Wallace Stevens, a 20th century American poet. Uh, one of He wasn't a Buddhist, but one of his main themes was awareness, the mystery of awareness and knowing oneself. I was myself the world in which I walked, and what I saw and heard and felt came not but from myself, and there I found myself more truly and more strange. In the Theravada tradition that we undertake, the practices we undertake, there's great emphasis on mindfulness. And I'd like to touch on an aspect of this mindfulness that I found very helpful to understand a more, a larger picture of, of my nature. And this is bare attention. So bare attention is the, a kind of the basis or the seed state of awareness. The basic facts of our mental processes, the simple awareness without add-ons. Everything we know and can be aware of begins with bare attention. But because that happens very quickly, we're usually not aware of it. That's where we engage in meditation. That helps us slow down enough to become aware of it. Usually the next step, which is associative thinking, follows bare attention instantly, follows its heels, really, just jumps right on it. And we find ourselves in the storylines and the reifications, in the idealizations, the concepts. We add our egos. Uh, and this wonderful phrase I love from one of my teachers, Angie Boisifan, who speaks here sometimes, the great me. We, we put the great me in the starring role very, very quickly when we're not paying when we're not tuned into this bare attention. And then we project and defend. As a practice, I find bare attention is kind of a sifting practice. We can tune in to finer and finer aspects with this keeping in touch with this aspect of mindfulness. And we can see what actually appears in our field of awareness, what is what is actually happening within each of our senses all coming up together. And this this finer sifting is finer in the sense of less weighed down with concepts, with notions of ownership, with judgments. When we tune into this aspect of awareness, those tend to fall away and we learn to expand the space-time of our awareness. This is all accessible through our direct experience, but it does take some development. It's a skill, so our patience is called for. And as our experience matures through our practice and patience, we come in to our own mind-body realization that there is nothing that, that is lasting and that our trying to hold on to things at these deep levels is what causes us stress and suffering. And then 
another bit of the good news that when we knowing this directly for ourselves allows us to loosen up and lighten up. Experiencing this kind of awareness is like the sun coming from behind the clouds to shine on our true nature. And as we see and remember this from our continuing practice, we discover, uncover the possibilities in every moment of living from a more balanced place, being both more buoyant and more grounded. I'd like to end um, my talk this morning by noting that the larger we open this lens of awareness, the more we see the elements of wonder and the opportunities for creative engagement with our lives. We see our human Buddha nature can encompass vastness and yet can remain part of our everyday lives, doing all the things we must do to get here and get away, to work, to eat, to keep alive as human beings in our relationships, in every aspect. And we can see that we are both our unique self and also our self is not fixed and it's related to every other thing. And finally, I'd like to end with some more poetry which for me points the way in a different way than description. This poem is by William Stafford, who is um, a 20th century American poet. Uh, He just died recently also, a couple of years ago. And I don't believe he had a Buddhist practice. This poem is called The Gift Time wants to show you a different country. It's the one that your life conceals. The one waiting outside where the curtains are drawn. The one grandmother hinted at in her crochet design. The one almost found over at the edge of the music after the sermon. It's the way life is. And you have it, a few years given. Long-suffering, you wait and pray, and maybe good things come. Maybe the hurt slackens, and you hardly feel it anymore. You have a breath without pain. It is called happiness. It's a balance, the taking and passing along, the composting of where you've been and how people and weather treated you. It's a country where you already are, bringing you where you have been. Time offers this gift in millions of ways, turning the world, moving the air, calling every morning, take it, it's yours. And the last poem I would like to read is 
from Patachara, who was one of the early Buddhist nuns, lived at the time of the Buddha uh, and took teachings directly from the Buddha. And she points to this awareness, this nature, in a very simple, direct way that Izumi pointed it. That Izumi pointed to it in her poem. Bathing my feet, I watch the bath water spill down the slope. I concentrated my mind the way you train a good horse. Then I took a lamp and went into my cell, checked the bed, and sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick down. When the lamp went out, my mind was freed. So I thank you very much for your attention and I invite you to speak if if there's something you want to say about awareness, meditation practice, or anything. I really find it very enriching and enjoyable to hear what you have to say. Thank you. Well, I think we have. I think we have this awareness. Um, this is—it's part of what we—it's part of our apparatus. We have the awareness, but to tune into those finer aspects, I think concentration practice is um, is very useful. My personal experience—it's very useful to do that. It's—I don't think it's necessary necessarily. We all have different, um, because we are all unique, we all have different, we've all composted our, 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 ourselves in, in different ways in a sense, so that, um, so that perhaps for one person a concentration practice isn't necessary. I also believe that this changes over time um, and that it it develops and unfolds as we go on with with just simply sitting down. Uh, and certainly there are whole Buddhist traditions that say, for example, Zen says you don't need any concentration practices whatsoever. You, uh, you just simply bring yourself to sit down, be with your body and mind, be with your breath. Although... You know, we could get we could get technical, and say how much is being with the breath a concentration practice, but in a way that's um, that's it's in, it's kind of interesting to do that. I hope this has addressed um, some of your question. Anyway, thank you.
question? Uh, it's a great topic, and uh, I've been reading Joseph Campbell recently, and he um, made this statement, something like, uh, anybody who's ever worked in the creative realm knows that the way you work is you create an open space, and then something comes into it, and uh, you can't control it. And, uh, and he talks about how the Greeks thought that these were the gods speaking to them. The, the, they uh, didn't think of it as self-talk like we do. They thought that it was something that was completely separate from themselves. So I'd be interested to, you're a writer, what was it like for you to have this awareness that brings your ideas and brings, you know, your insights? Well, thank you for for uh, for bringing that in. That's a very um, it's a, it's I find it quite a beautiful way and also a very succinct way. What you quoted uh, Joseph Campbell of, of of describing this process and. Um, and I remember reading that in another context from another writer, um, Julian Jaynes, um, about the, the Greeks believing that the gods were speaking to them. And the way that, that Buddhism, which I tried to touch on a bit um, this morning, the way that I understand that Buddhism sees this is, is that it's all of a piece instead of being the gods out there or ourself talking to ourself. Um, and I've, I very much resonate with, and I, and this is a dis, with his description of you open when you when you do creative work, you open a space, um, or or you you allow yourself to be in a space of openness. I mean, there are a couple of ways you could phrase that, uh, and I think that it's um, many people who who are artists or engaged in so-called creative work, describe it as this, but also other people. And I, I, um, I'm coming more and more to look at every work we do as a kind of a creative work in, in the sense of in this. And that's through my Buddhist practice, actually, of seeing that, um, particularly through the practices of mindfulness, moment by moment, of seeing these spaces that are there and that allow creative engagement with whatever it is that we're working on or doing in our lives. So, thank you. Yes. Um, well, I agree with what Stephen Jay Gould was saying that there are a very small number of people who disrupt an otherwise um, more harmonious. Society. Um, but I wonder how Buddhism um, addresses the current political situation with Al Qaeda, for example. You know, most Americans have very little to do with um, what it is that is bringing them to this state of tremendous hostility toward us. So, what is the what is the response? Well, I don't. Um, I don't really know that there's a that there is a Buddhist response. In fact, my sense is that there's not a monolithic response of, of that that one could call a Buddhist response. 
um, accept that. Um, and this comes from, my sense of that comes from talking with a number of people who are engaged in practice for some time, how to, how to, how to be with this, how to address it, how to engage it, etc. So, and maybe one, there was a lot written right after 911 by various Buddhist writers, and there were views all over the map, kind of, in, in a certain way. Uh, so, since Buddhism seems to allow the most possible of, of individual response, working from um, certain basic principles, as, as again, according to my understanding, which, which some of which I quoted at the beginning from the Dhammapada, if, if, you, if you believe that from your own knowledge that hatred never dispels hatred, only love dispels hatred, if you, if you have a sense of that, um, and many people who are not Buddhists have a sense of this, um, that can be a guidepost for you. That can be something that you can tune into if you feel that that's part of your integrity, your way of looking at the world. So in a way, one could say that that's um, a very Buddhist way to, to, to really have integrated and to know this principle um, from inside. And then the question becomes, and this is the difficult part, without a doubt, it's not easy. And I think the people that I've talked to who are practicing Buddhists all kind of work with it and, and try to keep open and try to see how to engage with it creatively. The Dalai Lama is a, you know, a light for many people because he, he steadfastly refuses to, to lay blame uh, on the Chinese, for example, who've done, um, you know, pretty awful things um, in Tibet to his people. Um, And he says, we just have to keep talking. We just have to keep engaging. So then how does one keep doing that? It's it's not easy. It's frustrating. It's it's many things. I, I personally found for myself that I... that I started to do piecework after not doing... I mean, and even not you know, huge, dramatic, uh, you know, earth-shaking, breaking stories, but doing some vigils with people and doing some things like that after years of not thinking about that. So I don't know if this has gotten to the heart of your question, which is a very profound question. It is, it is the, um, the nub of it in a way. How do we hold this all? Can we hold it all? It hasn't worked so far very well for the Tibetans in forgiving the Chinese and feeling love toward the Chinese. This is true. I think there's holding 
there's hope, there's, there's, there's a way of being peaceful in our hearts um, that's in a sense a ground and independent of, of notions like e- effectiveness. For one thing, effective is a time-based um, idea. And so Buddhists that I've heard talk also describe, um, describe this as really focusing on patience and seeing that we don't have an answer that's going to come or, or we may not see the fruits of our actions <clears throat> even in our own lifetimes. But what we are doing by refusing to engage in violence, including laying blame, becoming angry, <clears throat> with those who are committing these actions is actually, uh, even though we may not see it, that these are actually powerful and um, deeply healing actions that we can take and stances that we can take. Um, and another argument, once again, this is an argument um, which doesn't necessarily address, it may, it may not necessarily address what you're, what you're getting at, but I, I think the central thing is holding it, is having a sense oneself where one's own self stands about violence. You can look at it in your own life. But um, the argument is, has the other way done anything? That's what the Dhammapada said, you know, in very few words. Hatred never dispels hatred. Have we ever seen that in human history where hatred has stopped hatred? I, I don't... I don't know of any examples. We're still living out where we have the counterforce, the violent force, and then the counterforce, and that just proliferates and spins out. It's kind of a... This way, this Buddhist way, in a sense we could say it's a way of (laughs) non-proliferation. But... um, well, thank you for bringing that up. And Perhaps we could sit for a couple of minutes and um, maybe tune into a, whatever nature is coming up for us now. <clears throat> 